Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer. I am one of your co-hosts, Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And we are extremely excited today because we are speaking with Jim Zuris. Jim is one of the co-founders of Stefan Zuris, a nationwide law firm. Stefan Zuris has recovered more than $250 million in verdicts and settlements on behalf of hundreds of thousands of clients around the country. Jim has re- As part of that, Jim has recovered tens of millions of dollars in damages in individual and class actions arising under federal wage and hour laws and other complex litigation and catastrophic personal injury cases. In addition, Jim has helped secure groundbreaking and precedent-setting court decisions in the areas of wage and hour law, consumer fraud, and employee privacy. Jim has received many awards and accolades throughout his career. In 2000, Chicago Law Bulletin named Jim one of the top 40 lawyers under the age of 40, and one of the youngest lawyers ever bestowed this honor. He's also been named an Illinois class action super lawyer in every consecutive year since 2009. Jim graduated from University of Illinois Chicago with a degree in political science with distinction and received his JD from DePaul University College of Law, where he was an editor of the Law Review and graduated with honors and order of the coif. Amit, one of your fellow DePaul grads has broken up the Chicago Kent Mafia. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much. It is uh, truly an honor and a pleasure to be with you all today. You know, I'm truly humbled. Well, and, the, and, the honor and, is all ours. Go on. And again, I'm excited just to have a DePaul grad on. We have so many Kent people. We have to break this up a little bit. Well, there's plenty of DePaul graduates out there and they deserve their due. So, Jim, we're going to just jump right in. So you are, sometimes I joke with Amit that we're laying it on thick with some of these bios. And one of our running jokes is that Amit writes them in the most convoluted and complex way possible just to see how much he can trip me up. But in your case, this really is deserved. And I want to dive right in because one of the laws that has really earned all these distinctions for you and your interpretation and, and application of that law is the Biometric Information Privacy Act in Illinois. Can you tell us what the hell BIPA is and why it matters, what's important? Be happy to. So the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, known as BIPA, is the only statute of its kind in America. It is an Illinois state statute which regulates the collection of biometrics. Biometrics are things like fingerprints, thumb scans, facial recognition, retina scans, even voice recognition. So these are all the immutable characteristics that make human beings what we are. If we take fingerprints, for example, you are the only human being to have your fingerprints in the history of mankind. You are the only one who will ever have your fingerprint in the future at any time. So what BIPA seeks to do is to regulate the taking by private entities of those biometrics, and the dissemination of them, the sale of them, the use of them, the storage of them, the sharing of them. Uh, And all it really seeks to do is something very basic. It's kind of a fundamental right. It, It seeks to require informed consent. It gives the power to the individual to say no to the collection of those biometrics after receiving information 
about what that entity is doing, what it's going to do with that data in the future, how it's going to manage it, if it's going to destroy it, if it's going to do anything else. It requires written informed consent in its essence. And that goes for any context in and outside the employment context. Our, our practice is generally employee focused, but it, it applies to every consumer. It applies to every citizen in Illinois. It's not asking for a lot. It's simply saying before a company takes this very sensitive, valuable, important data, which is the way we are all going to identify each other in the future, it's not going to be with a social security number. It's not going to be with a credit card. You know, those things are all replaceable. These things are not. And all it seeks to do is to give the, the person the informed power to say yes or no. That's it. Well, I guess a simple question I have always wondered and people have asked me is why are companies maintaining this information? Why are they taking a consumer or employee's biometric information? In its simplest terms, because they can, because they have a great opportunity to do it. They generally do it because it is a cost-saving efficiency measure. They are using biometric timekeeping devices for the sake of efficiency to eliminate things like buddy punching, you know, people clocking in and out for their friends, you know, to eliminate inaccuracies, to maximize efficiencies, to maximize cost savings, whatever it is. You know, that's all, that's all well and good. The problem is that they collect these vast storehouses of valuable, important data that is susceptible to being breached. We have Russians breaching some of our institutions as we speak, meat processing, oil refineries, you know, whatever it is. It's not a big stretch to think that they could do that with respect to this data, which is more valuable and going to be exponentially more valuable in the future than oil or anything else you could possibly imagine. So, so the why, it starts with, you know, some, some valid workplace reason, but once they have it, it can turn into all sorts of abuse. And that brings sometimes a second question, which is, you know, with, let's say you have an iPhone, you have a fingerprint scanner. Is that also triggering BIPA? Is that a collection of biometrics or that's somehow different? Here, here is why BIPA is so important. And here is why education and information is so important because we all have smartphones. And we all now understand, hey, I put my thumb on my iPhone and I can open it and I can do all sorts of things with it. So when I do that on the iPhone, that data doesn't go anywhere else. It doesn't go to Apple. It doesn't go to the cloud. It doesn't go to any servers. That data is maintained and limited locally to that device. And when a, a employee, an hourly wage earning employee is clocking in and out at their employer's place of business using a biometric timekeeping device, they very well may be under the impression that the exact same thing is happening there when in fact that is, that data is landing in the hands of the private entity, of the employer, and then going probably to a third party vendor to process payroll and God knows where else. But the problem is people are so used to doing this on their smartphone, putting their thumb on the smartphone that they very well may think wrongly 
that the same thing is happening with the biometric device at their place of business when it's a completely different animal. What, so you talked about in your, in your introduction to what BIPA is a couple minutes ago, you talked about what some of their certain requirements are. How is this law enforced, Jim? How does this play out? So for those who are not used to the, to the litigation for BIPA, who are kind of coming to this a little fresher, or who may have at some point just randomly gotten a check from one of the lawsuits that someone like yourself has filed, what protections are out there if a company doesn't follow these requirements? How does that play out? Well, you know, provides for some very strict private enforcement uh, mechanisms. So the General Assembly, in its wisdom, decided to give the power to private individuals to enforce this statute really as a incentive for companies to simply obey the law, which is simple, straightforward, easy to comply with. It, it provides for a private remedy if it's determined that there are negligent violations of the law, then there are statutory penalties of $1,000 per violation. If the private entity has done it in a uh, reckless or intentional manner, the penalties go to $5,000 per, plus attorney's fees. So, you know, the penalties are significant. But again, the driving force when the General Assembly passed BIPA in 2008, by the way, 13 years ago, was to provide the maximum encouragement to simply comply. I don't think what was really on their minds was that, hey, I'm going to do something where, you know, Jim Zuris is going to have sort of a side practice at his firm, you know, enforcing BIPA. I suppose it's turned out that way for whatever reason, but I don't think that was really on their mind. They were simply trying to get uh, corporate America to comply. And I, I think this was, you know, a good way to attempt to do that. But that's, you know, that's the answer to your question, I suppose. So how does corporate America comply? What are steps that companies can take to ensure they're not violating BIPA? You know, it's funny. It is extraordinarily easy to comply with. Really, you need to provide the employee with a form which explains exactly what they are doing, the nature of the collection, why it's being done, what the purpose is, how it's going to be maintained, how the data is going to be disseminated and to whom, how it's going to be destroyed, and so forth. And this is something that when you're an employer, it's not a big challenge to you know, provide to your employee uh, over whom you have total control, total power over. You can certainly provide this information and get informed consent. At least give the employee a fair chance to provide feedback, ask questions, and so forth. Of course, employers do this routinely when it benefits them, right? When it comes to getting arbitration agreements, you know, when it comes to asking employees to surrender their constitutional rights to a jury trial, for example, in court to have a judge or a jury hear their claims, which have not even arisen yet into the future. No problem at all getting a signature on that, you know, arbitration agreement on that class action waiver, whatever it is. So a similar mechanism could be used, you know, during the onboarding process, during subsequent policy rollouts to get a form to provide the informed consent that's what they could do. And by the way, many companies did. I mean, it's not like every company violated the law, but that's how you do it. And then you're fine. 
then you, you have no exposure under this statute. Easy to do, easy to comply with. So how did this get put on your radar? Like what drew your attention to this? Because this law was on the books for almost 10, you know, this law, as I understand it, both from talking to you and, and some of my own research, you know, this law came about close to 15 years ago now in the wake of a pretty massive data breach in the state of Illinois, but it was on the books for nearly 10 years before anybody touched it and started bringing lawsuits. What, what drew your attention to this and motivated you to start pursuing privacy violations like this? Well, so our firm traditionally has represented employees, human beings in various dispute, disputes, mostly in the wage and hour context. So these are violations for uh, companies not paying overtime, not paying minimum wage, classifying folks as independent contractors when they're really employees, making employees work off the clock in the restaurant field. It might be, you know, taking their tips, not providing the notices under the tip credit rules, you know, what have you. So over the years, we had, you know, through our class action practice in Illinois and nationwide, built up. A, a substantial clientele of happy class members whose rights were vindicated under those you know, various wage disputes. As time went on, we began to realize that there was this statute out there that was being just starting to be used in the consumer context, BIPA, for the violations of, of what we, we've been talking about, you know, collecting biometrics without permission and so forth. It, uh, for lack of a better word, lights, you know, went off, alarms went off because we began to realize through our practice, we, we knew that that was happening in the workplace fairly prolifically. And we began to research and investigate whether or not those companies that we already knew uh, were collecting biometrics by virtue of these timekeeping devices or these devices that regulate access into different parts of buildings and facilities, you know, opening doors and so forth. We began to investigate whether our clients in those matters had the opportunity to say no at any point after the statute was implemented. And it began turning out that the answer was no in many cases. And so our firm, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was the fir first firm to file a, a case in the employment context on behalf of a group of employees. And so that started us down this, you know, path that we are on now becoming very staunch, you know, advocates for, for BIPA privacy rights in Illinois. That's awesome. And it's just, it also highlights to kind of the forward thinking aspect of your practice that, you know, we definitely want to talk about at some point as well. But, you know, I know candidly for me, the landmark decision or the landmark thing that really highlighted BIPA was the Six Flags case from the Illinois Supreme Court. Right. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, sure. that case? Sure, sure. So that is one of the consumer cases that was on the radar, you know, around the time that we had decided that we were going to try to vindicate the rights for, for employees in this, in this area. At that time, I, I, I can tell you, you know, speaking to colleagues, other folks that do, you know, what I do for a living, there was a lot of uncertainty on whether or not the standing argument was going to work. 
So just, you know, for, for everybody's, you know, quick reference point here, there was a defense argument that, that did gain some traction in the early days of BIPA that the, the, the plaintiffs who had their biometrics collected didn't have standing because they could not show what we hear is the absence. There was no concrete harm, supposedly, whatever that might mean in those days, that they didn't have, you know, monetary harm, for example. Hadn't been, they hadn't been injured by the violation, right? Like they hadn't suffered a tangible injury. Supposedly. And, Supposedly. and, that, has, and that has been a matter of hot dispute at the federal level, at the United States Supreme Court level. There's a seminal case called Spokio on all this. And, you know, there, there's been some uncertainty on this. Suffice it to say, the Illinois Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision in that case, the Rosenbach case, said, yeah, this harm is real, and it really is concrete, and it really is tangible. And so that, I suppose, alerted everybody that, you know, these were viable claims. For us, we had always been committed to that, and we, we were litigating, you know, dozens of BIPA cases before that decision came down. So that was right in line with our thinking that the failure to give the the aggrieved person a chance to say no, the failure to get informed consent is real, tangible, concrete harm. And, and certainly the Supreme Court agreed. It reminds me a little bit. It's not it's not a one for one comparison. It's not a perfect example, but COBRA, when somebody has their rights to health insurance coverage, when you lose your job, right? Like the employer of a certain size has to give you written notice that you could continue to purchase coverage. You know, realistically, our clients, the people we typically deal with in our practices can't, but you still are supposed to have that notice under statute. And if they don't give you that notice and a certain number of days passes, the penalties start to accrue. And one of the complaints I would always hear from defense lawyers on those cases is, well, what's the harm? They couldn't have paid for the insurance anyway. And, and it's like you said, with the biometric claims here. The harm is you didn't even give them the chance to say no. They were supposed to have that option. Well, and, 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 and if that's not right, well, then what's the purpose of these statutes? You know, what, why do we have laws at all? What, why, why do we allow our legislators to pass laws that say you have to do something if an entity could just come in and say, yeah, I know I had to do this, but you haven't proven something above and beyond what the statute requires. And so you don't have your day in court. I, I, I've always been mystified by that, that point and that argument. It, it truly you know, uh, amazes me that, that that concept ever gained any traction. You know, The law is the law, right? So I, those arguments, I think fortunately are, are sort of beginning to lose some steam I, I think courts are beginning to embrace the idea that, well, if the statute exists, and assuming it's constitutional, by the way, and, and it's, you know, any statute can be attacked on constitutional grounds, I suppose, but, but assuming, you know, it is legitimate, it's constitutional, then the fact that there is a violation should give rise to a cause of action exactly as the legislature, as the people have dictated. So I'm a firm believer in, in, in you know, our, our representatives want something, it should be done and it shouldn't be up to some random, you know, multi-billion dollar company to say it really, you know, means or requires something else. 
you so one of the first one of the first attacks on BIPA, I guess you just walked through was well, there's no harm there. You haven't actually been injured, so that was the Rosenbach decision. That argument goes away. I'm gonna go. I mean, we know the answer to this, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and assume that you know that is not the last statutory or or court driven attack on BIPA claims. There are a couple of appeals that are hanging out there up and above the trial court level right now. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other attacks on BIPA or some of the other arguments out there that folks like yourself and others are trying to fend off to protect this cause of action for workers? Absolutely. There is a case right now before the Illinois Supreme Court on whether the Workers' Compensation Act preempts BIPA. Now, here's a remarkable argument. We know what workers' comp is, at least in a generic sense. You get hurt at work, and there is a workers' comp program or regimen where you get paid for your physical injury. You lose a finger, you break a bone, you're in a factory, you know, bad things happen, whatever it is. And it's not personal injury. You've already you know, waived your rights to file a personal injury claim. So you're not going to get big money for this. On the other hand, it's, you know, the, the trade-off is that it's not going to be a big fight. You know, there's basically a book that tells you what a finger is worth or whatever it is, and, and you get paid for it. But in any event, the defense bar in their ingenuity decided to pursue arguments that workers' comp really is where BIPA claims belong. So they're equating to the taking of biometrics with suffering a, a physical injury, a broken bone, a cut, losing an eye, whatever it is in a factory. Remarkable arguments, remarkable even I think to the lay person world. It has gained zero traction. I, I believe there are 40 or 50 trial court decisions on this and all of them have, have universally rejected the argument. The Illinois Appellate Court has rejected it I'm fairly confident, as will the Illinois Supreme Court. So that is one, you know, big one that is out there. Another one is, well, there, there's a couple that we are involved <laughs> with right now. The statute of limitations. What's the statute of limitations under BIPA? The statute doesn't say. When that happens, there's a rule in Illinois. There's a statute. Statute doesn't say. It's five years. It's a default, if you will. We say it's five years. Once again, every trial court, 30, 40, 50 decisions have said it's five years. The appellate court is going to rule on that. We're waiting for an opinion. We're confident in the result there as well. Another uh, argument is the accrual issue. So accrual is, well, well, when do these claims arise? Like, when do you, you know, have a right to bring claims? So we, we have a case before the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals on this issue. Once again, generally, almost, almost uh, in every case, the courts have said that on every time, let's say you collect biometric data without getting informed consent, your cause of action accrues. The defense bar has, has argued that no, it's only the very first time. So an entity that broke the law, BIPA, broke the BIPA law, let's say in 2009, after the uh, statute was enacted, they're saying that, well, we did it you know, once then, we did it every day after, up until the present day, let's say, but there's still no exposure, there's still no liability because it's only the very first time we do it. Only, only once do you have a, a right to, or does, does the claim accrue? So in this case, back in 2009. 
In any event, in the case we're, we're defending on appeal, the trial court ruled that no, that's, that's not the case, and that every time the law is broken, the, the, the claims approve. So that's another issue that is percolating you know, in the Seventh Circuit. To go back to the statute of limitations case, it seems pretty straightforward it would be five years. What's the, what's the defense argument on that one? Well, they are trying to cram you know, BIPA cases into other types of statutes, like publication-based statutes. So things like slander, you know, things, things that are, are really markedly you know, different from BIPA. These are statutes and these are common law principles where, you know, you are defaming people, you know, you're slandering people, you're providing false information, things of that nature. And they're simply trying to analogize BIPA, which is a, you know, a, a completely different type of statute regulating completely different things into, into those, those types of, 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 you know, regulatory schemes. You know, again, they're really not it, it, I, I struggle with it. I struggle to explain it really because I, I don't really totally get it myself. But, you know, there are statutes that provide for a one year statute of limitation, for example. There are common law principles in, in the, you know, the publication based tort world that provide for, you know, short statutes of lim limitation. Yeah, that's great, except that's not what's happening here. I mean, BIPA does not require publication, you know, whatever that means. You know, it's, it's taking biometrics. So you'll have to get a representative of the defense bar perhaps on the show to, you know, really explain to you what, what that really is all about. Do you, do you, so it's funny because like what with, with what we all do for a living and one of my kind of hobby horses or common themes we're always banging the drum on in these interviews is like we're all employment lawyers in some sense of the word, but each of our practices is very different. Everybody we've had on has just a uniquely different practice. But, you know, there are certain truisms to all of our practices. We all deal with people on the other side of the fence. You know, some of them, some of us have good relationships with some of those folks. Some of us have bad relationships with all of them or some of them, you know, do you, do you find, I suspect you find yourself dealing with a lot of the same folks over and over again. Have any of them ever just started yelling at you or been, I, I don't want you to share names or anything and get yourself into that kind of trouble here. But, you know, do you ever find them kind of haranguing you saying, why are you doing all of this? What's the harm here? Really? Who's really being hurt by this stuff? You know, I've, I've certainly read the articles and I've read the arguments in my own briefs on this issue, right. Of the supposed cottage industry of, of gotcha claims that we're all bringing, but how do you, how do you typically respond to that? Or how do you interact with that? Well, first of all, yes. Um, <laughs> as I've set you up, as I've set you up for a real. This, this is perfectly, perfectly legitimate. I mean, there are a group of defense lawyers defending BIPA cases who, for lack of a better word, are crusaders. And they are apologists for corporate America. They are faced with situations where their clients universally, widely, simply ignored the law for inexcusable, inexplicable reasons, for reasons I don't fully understand. Keeping in mind, by the way, BIPA was passed unanimously in 2008. That's a pretty big deal. That means to get it passed, that means there were lobbying groups for corporate America down there at the time who said this was okay, who didn't fight it, who didn't have their own, you know, legislators who, who are in their pocket fighting back on this. 
Keep, keep all that in mind. So the statute gets rolled out and we have years, decades of non-compliance. And then we have lawyers who come in and all we hear are excuses from a certain group of uh, defense counsel that represent you know, folks in Bipa cases who say, starting with, there's no harm, there's no reason for the law, it's a bad law, it, you know, it, 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 it stifles innovation, we can't use biometric technology, it's gonna destroy the workplace, it's gonna, it's, everybody's gonna go bankrupt, there's gonna be rampant unemployment, we're gonna have folks in nursing homes being thrown out and left to die in the streets, and so forth. All because we would like the law enforced and not ignore it. To the credit of others, they take a more realistic approach. So there's two groups, really, as far as the defense. There's what I just described, where it's fight to the death. Everything is, you know, coming up with excuses and coming up with every reason to, 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 to fight these cases. And then there's the other group that has taken a more sensible, reasoned approach. They want to solve the problem. They want to come into compliance. They want to acknowledge what has happened in the past and move on. And frankly, you know, I, I respect those folks. At least they come clean when they come to us like that early on. We work with them. We're not out for blood. We make that very clear. We're not out, you know, to, to, to you know, max out on this. I mean, we're willing to be reasonable. And we have been. And we've developed good relationships with, you know, certain folks that take that approach. What can I say? Not everybody's of that frame of mind. Any legislative changes that you may want to talk about? Well, I, I, I you tell you us. Know, needless to say, I mean, we are, you know, fighting a war on numerous fronts. So we're fighting in the courts. We're also fighting in the legislature. So there are very powerful groups well-financed groups in Springfield attempting to change the law, attempting to eviscerate, you know, all the protections that, that, you know, BIPA provides for. So far, those efforts have failed. I assume they're going to continue. My view is that if, you know, with more education, more information to the public, th there's really no chance that those efforts will ever go anywhere. I mean, if anything, that statute, BIPA, doesn't go far enough. When you really think about the importance of this data, how critical it is, how easy it is to get it and to send it around the world, how valuable it is. You know, and by the way, there are other states right now that are modeling new legislation on BIPA, which is considered the gold standard of, of this, this area of, of privacy law. So I think it would send a pretty poor message to other states if we were to suddenly you know, change it when they're in the midst of doing the exact same thing and providing similar protections for their own citizens. Well, because it's the only law in the country, right, that provides for a private cause of action like this. I mean, there might be like laws that allow the state attorney general to fine a company, which is usually like a slap on the wrist that is from a company standpoint worth the cost of doing business because if it's like 500 bucks a head but you collected everybody's data and sold it to facebook or some other marketing entity for you know four times that you'll take that slap on the wrist any day of the well, week right of course you would because it would be worth it and there's really only a couple of states that have any biometric privacy protection other than illinois and you're right the few that do right now it's really you know attorney general type enforcement and i don't know how rigorous that's been 
But I think I think we've shown that to, just to get the attention of uh, some of these entities, you know, what we do has to happen because it's not going to happen any other way. They, we've proven it. It, it, it. It's simply ignored. So these are very important protections that I hope, you know, the Illinois public becomes aware of and enthusiastically supports. Well, I think, and to bring this this discussion full circle, Jim, you know, trial lawyers get a real bad, we get a really bad reputation because there's this notion, you know, you get these documentaries like, what was it, Hot Coffee or like the other, ver- the, the defense, I can't remember which one was plaintiff friendly and which one was defense friendly, but you know, about, oh, somebody sued McDonald's for getting burned by coffee. It's like that coffee gave this person third degree burns and was so scalding hot that spilling coffee sent him to the hospital for catastrophic injury. And like trial lawyers are the ones who went after the cigarette companies and these these large organizations that harmed the public to to enforce change. And so, you know, people can make these arguments against folks like yourself or against any of us saying, oh, well, you're doing this, that or the other. The reality is changes and better behavior only come when it starts to hurt somebody's bottom line. Right. Laws like this are needed and people like yourself are needed to enforce those laws or else people will go on continuing to break the law. I, I don't know that I could say it any better. And, you know, the McDonald's case, just to add a finer point to that, you know, McDonald's had been cited, I think, hundreds of times for violating the law on the temperature and they ignored it. Right. And so what else was going to get their attention to prompt change, if not a substantial verdict, a verdict by a jury of this lady's peers who heard all the evidence and decided this was the appropriate remedy. And so we hear about the McDonald's case in jury selection, even though that happened, I think 25 years ago to this day, and people are misinformed about it and it taints the process. And and that, you know, single-handedly, I mean, has probably saved corporate America billions of dollars to have the misinformation, you know, widely spread out there. You know, it's very disappointing. But you're right. You know, as trial lawyers, we get a bad rap oftentimes, all too often. I, you know, I think those sentiments you know, are changing. I, I hope they are. But, you know, you, you see, oh, well, you know, multi-million dollar verdict or whatever it is. And I, I guess because we're, we're given, you know, some money for that, we are paid for some of our services, that that's a dirty thing. I, I, I'm not really sure I, I grasp that when you understand what the defense bar is making to defend some of these cases needlessly and prolifically exponentially multiplying litigation as is done often in the BIPA cases. Why that is such a like, horrible thing. You know, we plaintiff's lawyers, we don't, we don't, our, our clients can't pay us. Our, our clients have no ability to pay us by the hour, by the day, by anything else. They're just ordinary human beings. They're working people. We go a very long time without any revenue whatsoever while paying rent, paying our employees, financing the cases, all under constant threat of never seeing one dime ever, which, which sometimes happens. I mean, I, you know, I don't win every single case I have. I like to think I do, but I know I don't. And so, yeah, this is kind of like a, a greater issue in the field. Yeah. The attorneys who are taking the approach of fighting tooth and nail aren't taking these cases on pro bono. They're going to be making a good penny defending all this stuff and taking them as far as they can. Nor are they taking them based on the results that they hope to achieve. You're not going to see these guys saying, you know what, here's the bill. Don't pay me unless I win. 
unless I prevent Zurich from getting any, any money or I limit it or I minimize it. No, 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 no. I want it all right now, today. So yes, absolutely right about that. Jen, is there anything you'd like to plug today? I would love to. So just in the past few days, you know, we, we, we hope and, and, and consider ourselves to be uh, trial lawyers at our firm. And that's where I got my start in life. I was, a, I was actually a plaintiff's personal injury trial lawyer for the first few years of my life. And I, I tried to develop those skills, you know, representing injured people in wrongful death cases, auto crashes, serious personal injury, you know, what have you. That's really where I, I, I cut my teeth, if you will. Fast forward, here we are in the year um, 2021. We have young lawyers. We've, we've tried to, you know, impart some of the principles of being a great trial lawyer onto them. We think being a great trial lawyer, regrettably, is becoming a dying art. It's, it's going in the way of rock and roll, unfortunately. But yet, there are times when you're going to have to try a case and you're going to have to put the jury in the box, if you will, and you're going to have to actually do it. And, and you know, it's time to, you know, speak up or shut up. Boy. Haley Jenkins and Anna Sergioli from my office, two of our, our young lawyers, recently tried their first jury trial in federal court in a wage case on behalf of a guy, an hourly paid guy who was deprived of you know, years, really of what I would call almost nickel and diming, you know, failure to pay overtime. It's the classic making the guy come in early and do work, you know, having him do you know, post-ship work, every day, you know, they, they, they say, oh, we pay you for everything, but you know, you can only record from, from nine to six or whatever it is. Oh, but here's a bunch of work at 8.30 in the morning, you know, so you're putting this trick box, you know, you're doing work, you're told you can't record it, you know, what do you do? This goes on for days, weeks, years, and so forth. Fought us to the death every way. Multi-billion dollar publicly traded corporation on the other side, you know, teams of lawyers, you know, international law firms, you know, whatever, pulled out all the stops, flying in witnesses from out of state to defend this case and, uh, you know, tote the, the corporate line. Very much rejected efforts at reasonable settlement all throughout. The jury comes back with a verdict very recently in favor of our client after just the relentless, diligent efforts of these two young women at our firm. I can't express how proud I am of them. I hear them you know, saying the things during the closing argument that we talked about, the themes that we know resonate with folks. And, and it's just, it, it's almost like a, a visceral reaction for me that, you know, that it, it worked. I mean, it truly, it validates our existence. I am just, you know, thrilled for our client, proud of our people. And, and you know, what a statement to push back on, on this practice, which by the way, the company is getting away with, not just with our guy, but with, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of others nationwide. This is just a drop in the bucket. No matter what, you know, the defendants win, you know, the, the, the amount of money they've saved and not having to pay people greatly outweighs the verdict we got here, which by the way, it was almost a complete victory for our client in almost every sense, but it's still a drop in the bucket. But boy, am I proud of our folks. That's and awesome. And what oh, were sorry. their, and what, um, no, I was going to say, and I, I don't know if you said it or maybe I missed it. What were the names of those attorneys, Jim, if you wanted to name drop them? Haley Jenkins and Anna Sergioli from my office. I mean, you know, and for, and the fact that this was their first jury trial on top of that, 
against experienced defense counsel, I might add. I, I mean, I, I'm just blown away, just absolutely blown away. That's super impressive. And so we like to end our show with a shout out of the week to just someone we want to promote or highlight. So I think this week there are three great shout outs. One or two of them are the two attorneys, Haley and Anna. And the third is just your client for sticking through it. It's a long battle and you know he deserves every penny he's hopefully going to soon get. Well, thank you for that. That really means a lot to us. Um, and Jim, anything you want to plug besides that? You, you know, I... Boy, when you, when you, I've been doing this now for, you know, good Lord, 25, 26 years, I, you, you, you have a chance to reflect at some point and, and, you know, you're gratified that you have the ability to help people and you, you look back and you try to figure out, you know, how you got here and how you went on this path. I, I look back at my alma mater, my undergraduate alma mater, which I think you mentioned earlier at, at UIC, they have been so gracious to like invite me back to talk to the pre-law society every year about the realities of going to law school, taking the LSAT, being a real lawyer, you know, the, the trials and tribulations. And, you know, they're, they're not shy about saying, by the way, you know, they've only heard the good stuff probably. So you should probably honestly tell them everything without like knocking it. I mean, I, I'm very happy with where I've come in life. But there's a lot of things these kids don't think about how, you know, you're probably going to be in debt. You're probably not going to be a multimillionaire in your first year out of school. You, I mean, there's a lot. Anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm so thrilled that I have a chance to go back there every year and talk to these kids. But it's also inspired me. We're, we're looking into setting up a scholarship for uh, the pre-law students at UIC, deserving ones. And it's not even really going to be based on are they going to go to law school or not. But it's more, hey, you have an interest in this. And, you know, that school, as it was for me, you know, you're probably not a trust fund baby if you go there. So you need it. You really, you know, these scholarships are really important. So we're, we're, we're in the process right now of, of setting something up, our small way of giving back to, to the community and me personally, to a school that really, for me, placed me on a path I, I had never dreamed I'd, I'd ever be on. I, you know, not to deviate from this. I never knew any lawyers growing up. I never knew any lawyers in college. I'd never spoken to one. I'd never met one. I didn't know anything about it. I had no idea I could possibly do it. It was almost like saying you'd go to Mars for me in those days. But that school, the professors, whatever, put me on this path. I'm really happy they did. I want to try to give something back. The scholarship piece is so, so awesome because I think a lot of times student loans become such a crippling impact on people who want to help other people. I think a lot of times I'll talk to people who are going to law school and they want to do impact litigation. They want to help the underserved communities. They want to help people like your client. And the reason they can't is because they're coming out with over $200,000 of debt. It's a mortgage. And so then they have to go to a big firm. They have to make some money and they can't help the people who they want to help. Exactly. And that could be a topic for a whole other discussion on how folks, you know, either because they don't have the proper guidance or for circumstances beyond their control, like you say, end up working in areas as a lawyer that really wasn't what they had in mind, really wasn't what their soul dictates. I'm, I'm blessed, very fortunate that I found a way to sort of duck that because, you know, I, I, I mean, not to, not to deviate here too much, but when I was in school, I was so scared to death that I was going to flunk out that I overcompensated by studying 
I mean, outrageous amounts of time. I was, I was a, a nerd in, in law school and I studied 12 hours a day and I was constantly creating outlines or whatever. I, when you do all that, apparently you can do pretty well. And, and I did. And I was top 10% in law review and I published an article and blah, 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 all this. When you do that, you're told there's only one way, there's only one place for you to go and that's big law. And so they made me interview with 25, 30 firms. My soul became more and more drained with every interview. With every interview, I was more and more convinced I could never do this. Yeah, you're putting a lot of money in front of me, but I, I could just, you know. So I was fortunate that I, I found a way to circumvent that and do something else. And I, I, you know, however that happened, I'm forever grateful that that happened. Thanks for coming on and for all you've done for consumers, for plaintiffs, for law students, and for our bar in pursuing these issues. We'll have to have you back on again. Thank I, you. I would, I would be honored. Thank you so much for having me on. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.